Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome, Aaron. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you feeling, man? I'm doing great. I'm Very good. good. Yeah. Just flew into Switzerland? That's right. I went to Switzerland, helped a friend move. That's not why I flew here. I flew here to teach and do things. But um, getting off the plane, it was really nice to just get into some work. Yeah, yeah. Um, helps with jet lag time difference. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, so what I wanted to ask you first is kind of just what's, what's got you excited right now? What in your movement practice and in your teaching are you really jazzed up about at this current moment? So at this current moment, I wouldn't say so much movement. It's actually much more story. I'm really deeply interested in story and telling stories. So that's been a big breakthrough for me in my workshop. And um, starting workshops off with stories. Um, I tell an old story, one of the old stories that I know, you know, it could be Native American, it could be Norse, it could be Irish, it could be, but there's a few stories that I've kind of gathered. Um, and I kind of feel out what the group is, you know, I feel out the room and then I tell a story as we warm up and the, the instruction is, um, pay attention to what you need and give yourself that, but also follow and track with the story. And just be, you know, be aware of like whether you're kind of losing yourself in your inner sensations or losing yourself in the story and try to stay in both. Um, and the story might last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And then at the end of it, we, um, I call it feeding the story. We basically speak about the images in the story that that moved us, that resonated, that just made an impact on us, that just were interesting. Um, and then we launch into the games and the, and the other things that I do. But what I found is that the story, just because it's so packed with symbolic language, um, gives a common language for everyone to kind of speak about their experience from. That's not necessarily biomechanical, it's not necessarily scientific, it's not psychological, it's just, it's something else. Um, so that's been really exciting yeah that's really interesting that you're you're getting to the art of storytelling uh i i found so just kind of with my own stuff what i found was that as i moved into teaching my long seminars i'd end up telling personal stories about my life um to kind of illustrate some of the points that we were trying to to get into and i found that that seemed to have a really big impact on my students and then when I encountered uh, Jordan Peterson's work, I got really interested in, well, actually before that, I was, I was trying to find a 
a method of understanding how stories work, what makes them meaningful, and how to uh, apply them, right? Like, how do you use them as a tool? And so I've actually started using these archetypal stories as well in my teaching. It's really interesting that you're, you're doing that. So what, what do you think is kind of attractive to you to the use of story? And what do you think the storytelling element adds for the movement teacher? Well, for me, meaning is very, very important. I mean, I think for all of us, meaning is very important. And the movement world, as far as I have been able to glean, can be very, very superficial. You know, movement is maybe a little deeper than bodybuilding. You know, we're going into something deeper than the aesthetic look of athleticism, we're actually going into athleticism. And then beyond athleticism, we're going into longevity. And beyond that, we might be going into relational skill. But still, it's um, to plug into some deeper undercurrents about like why we're here, like questions that modern philosophy has dismissed as meaningless, which still really, really um, matter a lot. Um, I think story and old stories in particular are, are a wonderful way. Mythologies are a wonderful way to um, tap into some of those questions. And when I was little, you know, I, I heard about mythology as like, oh, the ancients, they were stupid. And they didn't know that the sun rose because the earth is spinning around it and it's rotating. So therefore they created this whole whatever, whatever, you know to explain natural phenomenon they couldn't understand. When what I'm beginning to see is that story is just a very wild way to tell a very accurate felt truth. Um, and because of that, and because you know all of my life experiences and everyone else in the room has a life experience, these old stories are kind of distilled life experience from hundreds and thousands of people. And you can find yourself in the characters. And the characters have been kind of polished and stripped of all that is, in a sense, personal. So there's universal, you know? So I can understand what that evil witch is feeling like. And I can also understand what that ambitious warrior is feeling like and what that maiden's feeling like. There's all these um, characters in it that speak to parts of myself and parts of everyone in the room. Um, so I think tapping into that deep undercurrent is really a powerful way to just um, remind us that we're not just exercising. Yeah. Okay, cool. A couple of themes that I really love to, to dig into there. One is that, you know, I think you, you wrote it down in the notes that we were talking about for this interview, the quest for meaning, which is funny because that's exactly the word that, that we talk about. So we'll have to talk about the quest for meaning. But also I wanted to talk about this idea that I think there's a, there's a parallel in some sense between uh, a natural movement practice or a movement practice that's more uh, diverse or holistic and the difference between a story and, say, a statistic. Uh, yeah, I like that. I, I think there's a parallel there. So um, what, what we're doing in some sense is, is moving away from isolation with with how we are moving in the body. I think of, uh, of movement of a good movement practice is like a permaculture of the body. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's about understanding how 
that there, there's all these systems that we don't even understand all of them, but how do we nourish them as much as possible? And, yeah. and we've, we've, with science, we've been able to unlock all of this power through reductionism, but sometimes we forget what's lost in the process of reducing things. So, you know, there's this, the, the, the an analogy I always give is the analogy of nutrientism, right? We, we look at foods and we see them as containers for, for isolated nutrients. Uh, an orange is vitamin C, a banana is potassium, but yeah. actually an orange is many more things. And the way that all those things interact with each other is, is not so easy to define. So we used to believe when we first started isolating all the micronutrients and all the macronutrients that we could figure out the optimal human diet and sort of give it to people in pills. That's how we ended up with the idea of, of giving children um, formula instead of breast milk. And I think we've right. done the doctors are touting that as, you know what, skip the breast milk formula. Yeah. Much. We're, we can scientifically define the things that, that we need most. And it's like, well, actually it's just more complicated than that. There's so many yeah. layers of things like stuff like the, the microbiome and that you get from vitamin rest, you know, right. like, like that, there's yeah. something about that contact. Yeah. 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 Um, Katie Bowman talks about that. She talks about the idea that the act of breastfeeding nourishes physiologically nourishes mechanically the cultivation of the mouth and the cultivation of the jaw. So there's a lot, there's a lot that's getting missed there and we don't recognize that, or we haven't recognized that because we've gone down this path of reductionism. So, so what we're doing in movement practice in some sense, I think is uh, Katie Bowman said this in our interview, we're trying to put the orange back together, right? We've gone down the path of isolation. What is cardio? What is flexibility? What is strength? What is, you know, how do we isolate this muscle from that muscle? How do I get a bigger bicep head? Right. Right. Um, and, and it turns out that that's not very nourishing for the body. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to a really great place. So we're trying to, as, as kind of movement thinkers, we're trying to put these things back together. And I think in some sense, the stories are also that, right? Uh, Jordan Peterson has this really beautiful development of how knowledge is created, right? It starts with acting in the world, right? Exploring the world as it is. Then you repeat behaviors that allow you to escape things you don't want and attain things that you do want. And then you get to the point where you can start playing with the behavior, right? You start varying it and seeing what happens. And then you can you start telling a story about it. You start acting out a drama or ritualizing the behavior. Right. And then you can philosophize. Then you can explicitly talk about what it is that, that was captured in that story. Right. And then finally, maybe you get science. But as we go up those layers, it's, it's, the story is like the orange. It contains it contains yeah. more. It's a container. Within the, within the story, there is the, the theory. Within the story, there's the theory. And within that, there can be experiments. And within that, there can be like a refining of the theory. Mm -hmm. But the story is kind of the, um, the place to start for sure. Yeah. So, so I just think that's an interesting theme that we have. This, yeah, I really like that. This, this recovery of the holistic and, and we want to do that in a way that respects the power of the reductionistic and what that's given us. Right? We still want to have all those things. We still want to be able to talk about the statistics, talk about the, the specific details, talk about yeah. the you know external rotation of the femur, <laughs> femur or something like that. But Totally. Because we, we do know. run the risk of um, being anti-rational. Anti yeah. You know? um, 
which is something that happened in the 60s and 70s. And we don't need to go back to like this philosophy of being anti-mind, anti-West, anti-reductionism. It's just, that's only, that's a tool, a very valuable tool. Now let's put some of like, because of the distinctions we've been able to make through reductionism, we have a richer story. Mm -hmm. If we're willing to actually go back into the realm of story and relatedness and um, kind of weave the details into a big picture. That's really, it's really interesting with movement and also with these little tidbits of like, psychological material that that everyone in in class brings you know that's one of the things that's very interesting to me whenever there's a group there's a collection of individuals who are unique and have their own unique experiences and they have shared experiences and um you know to tap into that kind of group intelligence is very very interesting to me it's what keeps me teaching mm -hmm. um I actually learn yeah. and it's not that, you know, like I, it's, it's the best way for me to learn and selfishly I want to keep learning. So I create and call groups together so that I can create a learning environment in which everyone learns, including myself. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a, a really interesting realization that, that a lot of what evolve move play is, isn't something that, that would have naturally necessarily come out of my mind. It came out of the relationship between the concepts that I, that I would create and the people who came to my work. And because people yeah. came and they amplified themes, certain things grew. But it was only in the relationship between myself as a teacher and my students that specific branches were, were filled and grew and surprised me. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, there's a, that's, I was going to ask you about that, about, how do you weave in bringing out the story of the student? Yeah, I mean, so lately what I'm doing a lot is teaching through games and stories, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't even want to say teaching. I'm, I'm hosting games or initiating games, you know, catalyzing an atmosphere of play and learning. Um, but I like to pepper that with dialogue, you know, so we'll play a game. And then I'll ask a question. Um, and then people who are playing start talking about it, you know, and it can go from very, very um, simple stuff to like, what worked? Talk about that to like, what did you notice about the other player in their physicality? Talk about that. What did you notice about the other player? And what do you think it means about them emotionally? You know, like, like, so you can actually, and, and of course, there's a tremendous amount of projection that might go into it, but we're very perceptive. Humans are, you know, we have these amazing abilities to recognize patterns and like our intuition is kind of sparked by certain things. So to get feedback from multiple people about how they perceive you and your actions enriches you. It's like there's, it's one thing to have a mirror. It's one thing to have a video recording of yourself, but it's another thing to actually um, get information about how you're impacting various human beings in real time. Um, and I think that allows people, and then it, towards the end, after a lot of that, people can then um, 
tell the story of their experience in the in the that particular game or that particular class that particular workshop and weave it into the story of their life like why am i this way mm-hmm. why do i want the things i want um so it does it happens very organically and i actually i actually find that a lot of the, the stories just start coming out too um so it's a matter of um riding the waves and kind of steering the current a little bit because some people want to dominate and just room you know the people who love sharing their stories will love sharing their stories and they'll do that and maybe that's a good um a good way to start the flow of stories coming out but maybe they need to be um encouraged to be in listening mode a little bit more while someone else you know there's so what do you use yeah what do you use the strategies to to help the participants in the group who are, who have a hard time articulating themselves or have a hard time stepping forward into the group to make that yeah. step or to help those who, who, who find it very easy to speak, to be a little bit more uh, giving, if that makes sense in allowing other people. Yeah. Generous. More generous in allowing other people's space and more, more careful. Right. I, I see that, you know, people come and a lot of times when we're in these group phenomena, it's like, okay, you have 20 people and five of them will dominate the conversation. And a lot of times they have good things to say, but they could say them much more precisely if they, if they forced themselves to not, not dominate the space. If they said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hold it back. I'm going to refine it a little bit before I, before I try and share. So, right. And try to like, you know, there, there are like, <laughs> there's a story of a hunter that I sometimes tell who is really kind to an old woman and she gives him a gift. After he has to like, you know, he kills a bird that she tells him where to find. She swallows the heart. And every day he wakes up and there's a gold coin. First word he speaks is gold. So he becomes rich because like every day he opens his mouth and the first thing he says is a little nugget of gold, you know, and that's symbolic. It's, it's really about like, I think cultivating silence and cultivating perception and then really articulating what you say, like, you know, honing it so that it's impactful versus um, fumbling on your words and thinking out loud, which is also a beautiful skill. It's just a different, it's a different thing. It's a matter of context, right? There's a time when, when fumbling your words out because you need to, to just articulate yourself is there, but then there's a time when you need to give space for the other people in the group. And, and, and then it's like a, I don't remember who said it, but there was a, there's a famous quote, you know, um, I apologize for the, the long letter. I didn't have enough time to write a short. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So for those really talkative folks like myself and probably yourself, um, when you're in a group, knowing that you need to take that extra bit of time, right. To, to shorten what you have to say so that it hits with more impact and leaves space for other people. That was really powerful. So a lot of what I'm working on right now is I can articulate really well. What I'm, what I feel like I need to be better at is asking the questions that help the people or setting the space that helps the people in the group who don't have that same power for of articulation or assertiveness to, to tell their story because the more that they tell their story, I think, the more powerful the story is rather than receiving it from somebody else. So I'm curious if you have any specific ideas on how you, how you uh, 
set that up, how you get yourself to, how you bring the people out, how you ask the right questions to get people to engage in dialogue. Mm. I mean, that's a great question. Um, and I don't have like, I don't have a set of techniques that I can articulate right now, but I feel like I do that. Yeah. So it's a really good question and I want to, I want to pay attention to what I am doing and maybe uh, not necessarily codify it, but, you know, become a little more aware of what I'm doing so that it can be then transmitted and passed on. Um, yeah. As teachers, we're going through that same process, right? Of, yeah. Yeah. Of, of acting out, finding things that work and then later having to abstract them and find an explicit way of of doing them. So maybe I'll ask you a question, or maybe this will help is, uh, do you have a story of a, a particularly profound moment when someone in your workshop was able to articulate themselves in a way that was unexpected for them or for you? Yeah. So I, I have, um, a game I play, it's called the oppressor game yeah. or it's called stand on up. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's real simple. One person lies down, they have their eyes closed their goal in life, their goal in the game is to stand up. The other person has their eyes open. They're not lying down. And their goal in life is to keep the person with their eyes closed from standing up, to oppress them. Um, they're also kind of in a caretaking role in the sense that they can't kill the person they're oppressing because then they can't extract the valuable resources from that person, right? So you can kind of add these stories of oppression and da-da-da to it. Um, so... We were playing that game once and every round I would ask, what did you learn? What did you learn? And a lot of times it was very um, related to the game, very specific to the game. Well, if I push on the person's hip, you know, or shoulders, then I can control them a little bit more. And one person who was in the role of the oppressor said, I realize that I have to use the structure of the oppressor in order to stand up. And if I don't engage with the structure of the oppressor, there's no way middle stand um and that's a really powerful and deep insight into life right and it's interesting to look at the structures that feel oppressive to us and you know as, as young when i was young at least i, I was like fuck this system fuck this system no, no, no. i had all nothing but critique for it you know but it's too big and too strong to actually for my my little like willful storm of rage inside to change um so working with the system there's there's ways to kind of stand up out of it so that was just one powerful articulation that i remember uh, yeah the person who, who did that, would you say that, that they were someone who found it easier to articulate or more difficult to articulate? Not easy to articulate. Yeah, that, that's what made it very, um, that's what made it actually powerful because a lot of people, they just love to say what they're finding. But this person was silent throughout most of the, the workshop. Um, yeah. But then they gave you a little nugget of gold. Yeah, and then there's this nugget of gold that just dropped and it's like, boom, it's in me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how sometimes the, the students who, who speak little, when they do speak, it stays with you for a long time. Yeah.
Clint Eastwood. <laughs> um, cool. So, so you tell stories and you teach movement and you teach primarily through games these days. These days. Yeah. Games. And it's interesting cause I'm actually starting to go back into more corrective exercise, right? I don't like the word corrective, but, um, looking at structure. There was a while where I just kind of abandoned the whole idea of structure and just went into like um, task-oriented problem solving, sure. you know? Um, but I'm really looking at how joints are situated, tensegrity of the whole body, how we're aligning ourselves with gravity, um, and finding little tweaks to help people's I would say posture, but posture not as a static thing, as a dynamic thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm using um, walking and running and throwing as the screens. Of course, there's static standing as well, but that doesn't give me as much information as watching someone walk, run, or throw. Um, yeah. So. I like the idea of structure. I've been thinking about structure, particularly in reference to flow and parkour. Right. Um, I think... You can think about it in reference to, say, martial arts applications or other things. But for, for me, for my background, the, that kind of is, an, is a lens that's really interesting to me right now. Mm-hmm. And so I've come up with this sort of schema of how we do flow, which is you have to control the rhythm of the movement, how far you're displacing yourself up and down, how well you control your direction of inertia, um, mm-hmm. how well you orient your your perceptual systems and then how well you can control your structure. And that's both putting yourself choosing positions that allow you to apply your structure effectively in the environment, but also it's cultivating the capacities in the body that allow you to maintain structures that allow you to apply force to the ground effectively. Um, even when you're doing something that, that necessarily makes it difficult to have a good structure. How, how well can you move through difficult structural problems, recover good structure? And, and in that perspective, it's all about basically how do you maintain your body and your control of your center of mass so that you can apply force to the environment, right? So you're in a position and to the parts of the environment you want to apply force to. So the, the position that allows the best kind of um, application of force to the environment and, Posture, uh, people get really obsessed with posture, but a lot of times it's, like you said, it's, it's lower information than actually watching someone move. Movement, structure and movement is a, is a much more powerful thing. So what, so what are you looking for when you're analyzing someone's structure? What, what does good structure mean to you? And what's the kind of the output? What are, you, what are you hoping someone will get by changing the way that they relate with their structure? Yeah. So one of the main things I'm looking at these days is actually um, a sense of buoyancy and suspension in how someone walks or runs. Um, There are all these little um, points of leakage where force dissipates. You know, it could be when the person steps onto the floor, just kind of the hip 
shifts a little too much to the right, or there's a little more pronation or supination or a little knee waggle, or all these things that, um, all, the, all these little joint plays, which are healthy, but not in excess. And they, become, they can become habitual. So I guess I'm looking at the sense of buoyancy and um, buoyancy suspension, and where is there deflation in in someone's movement, where where is energy kind of being lost? Yeah, um, I like that consegrity idea you mentioned. It's like, yeah. where does force get concentrated rather than distributed? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I was. Yeah. Uh, what are the areas of 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 tension and buildup versus areas where? Um. Exactly. Where 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 a juncture for force to be. Um, spread. It's it's a, it's a wonderful way to think of it. Yeah, I, I was noticing this. This was kind of a little epiphany for me when I was in Spain. One of my long term students, Ruger, was doing some uh, dash faults, and he was complaining that his knee was hurting, and his knee had started hurting. And so I was just watching him. And I noticed that when he landed, he tend to landed with a very sort of chest down posture with his hips back, his hips far mm -hmm. behind his knee. And what it looked like was happening was basically that 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 his, he was sort of jamming his knee together and his hip, right? His weight was over, was, was too far over and he wasn't in a position where he could kind of get his hips underneath him and, and control the movement with the muscular of his hips. So it was just that connective tissue in the knee and the hip that were just sort of getting slammed into by the bone. Yeah. So I just, I pointed, I, I recorded him doing it, showed him kind of how he was in this hip hinged position and then showed him some of the athletes who had a very light and beautiful sense of movement as they moved through and how they were landing with a very kind of um, upright hip, I would say. What uh, what's Franz Bosch might call a, a hip lock position. So, so he changed that and right away the pain went away mm -hmm. um, almost immediately. So what was interesting then was I was training and I started getting some knee pain on my trip. And I noticed that it was almost exclusively when I was doing front flips that I was really irritating my knee. And so I watched myself do it and I saw that I'm doing the exact same thing hmm. that when I land my front flip, I'm not able to get my hip sort of under me. And then as soon as I get my hip under me, boom, it's like the force distributes up and down the chain instead of getting caught in that one leakage. Yeah. Um, so that's just an example of, of, of this idea of looking at it for where, where could force move that it's getting caught? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's also, you know, I've been reading a little bit about um, psychosynthesis, right? There was this Italian doctor who kind of created his own theory of how to, how to deal with patients, how to actually um, bring about integration. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a medical doctor and he kind of went into psychology. But it's much more about an approach and it's also very much about taking every individual as an individual, right? There are patterns, but it's not really about applying a technique as much as it is about what is this person experiencing? What's going on and what, what are they experiencing? Um, and I mean, I work a lot with old people privately as well. And by old, I mean like, you know, 80s plus. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certain cues that work for 
my athletes that don't work for them, yeah. you know, certain metaphors that don't make sense to them. So I have to figure out what does. Um, so yeah, there's, there's something about really, um, like one of the big questions I want to just kind of tie back into, <laughs> to something you were saying about, um, what, what questions I ask in class. One of the questions I first asked myself when I, um, when I began kind of teaching not, not yoga <laughs> was what are my principles? Like what principle can I apply to myself to, to lead a class? And then I formulated this real simple kind of silly thing that was lead with listening. Okay. Yeah, but that's that's a really big thing like in in working with individuals and even working with structure it's like i'm listening to what what dissipates listening to the impact of their feet listening to what they're telling me about what they're feeling you know and then creating um solutions based on that with the people as opposed to in, you know the hierarchical top-down kind of thing and i think that's that's we all talk about that but it's harder to do than to So it's a wonderful practice to do, you know, to really work with your clients or with your class as opposed to just impose will on them. Yeah. It's a, it's an art. It's something that I, uh, I have a, a kind of a funny story about that it might be interesting to the audience. So I, I was working on promoting my return to the source workshop this year. Mm. I was getting on the phone with people and talking to them about the event and, and, you know, I have an enormous amount to say about this event. So I'd schedule what was supposed to be a 15 minute call and then like 30 minutes would go by and I would still be basically just telling them the details about this event. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I ran into this guy, Javon Langford, who, um, who does men's work and he, uh, at a, at a seminar and I was talking to him and he was like, you know, like, he was like, you gotta, you should be, you should the, your clients should be talking 80% of the time. Mm. You should be talking 20% of the time. And so I went into the calls and I started listening and I started just, just saying, what is it that you're interested in movement? Where are you coming from? Where have you done? And, 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 and people started telling me their stories and it was fascinating because so many people had stories that were resonant with the same themes that, that I was sort of bringing to my work. And I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't listening to them. Yeah. So that's what, another thing that we've done with our, our long workshops now is not only do we tell stories, we ask all the participants to tell their story, right? Right. So we say every night we have, I'll tell a story. Um, but we also ask a few of the students every night to tell a story about what brings them to movement, what's meaningful to them, what's, what's driving their journey. Um, and, and it's amazing how much information you get there that teaches you um, it's incredibly powerful as a teacher because it, it tells you the most important things to pay attention to. Totally. And uh, yeah, I've just had a lot of profound experiences with that. So it's that's interesting. Like the, um, <laughs> I, I forget the guy's name. He's like the big Pixar guy. But he did a TED talk once yeah. and he said something so wonderful to me about a good story is, I mean, he didn't say it to me. He said it to, to everybody, but I took it in. He's like, he's speaking to me. Um, 
a good story is the well-organized absence of information. <laughs> this is uh, in your list of things you want to talk about. Teaching yeah. absence of information. Right. So, but it's a well-structured, well-organized absence of information. Um, and I find that with a lot of the old stories too. Like I'm thinking in particular of this Norse story about the, the lindworm, you know, like, there's so much that isn't said. There's a lot that's said, but there's so much that isn't said where we actually get to fill in our own experience. So if I gave you all the details of how horrible and nasty this serpent was and what color his eyes were and, you know, like what he smelled like, it's very different than just saying like, and then the serpent was there. He was huge. You know? Like, so there's something... Even in that, that I think is very, very, um, very interesting. How to, how to structure workshops, how to structure stories so that people fill in their own information. Um, and, it, and it goes with the lead with listening thing and it goes with the, you know, talk about 20% of the time thing as well. I really like that. I like it when the insights that are occurring are not coming out of my mouth, even though because I organized the workshop and I've done it multiple times, I can kind of predict what insight is going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that I'm not the one saying it. You know? Yeah. Can you trick your Can you trick your students into 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 teaching the workshop for you almost? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a sense, or it's not even a trick, right? Um, it's really encourage people to be. Yeah, to have ownership of their of their learning process. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a joking way to say it because you know you're not you're not oh, totally to out of something. But what you're trying to do is is empower people, right? One of the big realizations I had. So coming from the parkour community, most of us who started in the first generation, we trained ourselves. Yeah. So we have a an experience of what it means to attain a skill or to attain a skill level that is completely self-generated. And then you teach it to somebody else. And it's like, this is great because, um, because they learn it so much faster. And then if you're not, if you, if you pay attention though, you realize that you also install a, a potential for a dependency in the student. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there's a, there's an advantage to the teacher, but there's a disadvantage to the teacher. And uh, you know, you, 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 uh, in your notes for me, uh, on what we want to talk, we don't want to talk about learning, uh, creating spaces for learning versus teaching. And this reminded me of, uh, you know, what, uh, Yosef Rusic talks about is teaching without a teacher, mm-hmm. right? How do you create the, a space that empowers the student, the student to learn, right? And to learn in a way that's going to help them continue to learn in a robust way rather than make them, um, create a knowledge structure that makes them fragile to the, the absence of the teacher. Or hooks them on your system, right? That's, that's also a lot of what's out there. It's like, we're going to create a system that hooks you yeah. so that you just keep coming back to this system for the answers. And I don't know if that happens like in a um, kind of calculated evil way, but the structures out there for business are very much based on that often, you know? So if we apply that thinking to our teaching, maybe it's counterproductive to the benefit 
of all, right? Maybe it's, it goes against the goal of actually creating robust, resilient, self-generated movers or creating a world of healthy, playful people. Um, yeah. I think as a teacher, you have to ask a question, which is, are you trying to create clients, right? People are dependent on you so you can make money. Or you're right. trying to create the people that you'd like to be in community with. with. Yeah, totally. That was a big shift for me too. When I was like, you know what? I just want to invite people to play. And since no one's like hosting classes and workshops and play spaces that I want to be in, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And um, things really kind of took off from there. And I think when you go deeply, right? I think one of the thing, one of the reasons that people want to create dependent students is because they're not willing to work hard themselves. Mm. Right? Cause if you, if you're, if you're going to go on a deep journey for a long time and push yourself really hard, you're going to have the potential to give value to people in a, in a process for a long time. Right. You have to do that work. Right. And you also have to let go of what you think you know. That's the other thing. You have to let go of your position, perhaps. Yeah. Right? You have to be willing to accept that someone might be stronger than you, might be faster than you, might be smarter than you, um, might articulate things better. And rather than being threatened by that, encouraging that. And also seeing that your value might lie beyond those things. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I see my value as a teacher. It's not, it's not that I can do great handstands and not that I'm really fast. It's that I can create a space where people can actually learn, have wonderful experiences with one another and come away feeling like a little more empowered about who they are, how they want to practice becoming who they want to be. Um, it's interesting. It strikes me that that brings us back in some ways to that idea of the, of putting the orange back together, right? Because as a teacher, if you are, if your only way of, of valuing yourself is that you're better at doing the skills than everybody else, you, you're not seeing the whole story of what a teacher can offer. If you're same thing, if it's just because you can articulate the concepts more articulately, um, if you're really a leader, your goal is to lead people into the strongest that they can be. Right. And uh, to, yeah, to bring out the potential. Yeah. And it also goes from a very um, skin encapsulated sense of self. Like my sense of self is, it ends with the boundary of my skin to a sense of self that actually includes a larger whole. Yeah. You know? Like I instill, I, I replicated myself somehow in this person. So therefore the more successful they are, the more successful I am. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think there's two, there's two, as a teacher, when, when people look up to you and people expect, you know, or they, they see you as someone who has this leadership role, it's very easy to, to build your ego off of that. And it feels to me like there's a, that's a that's a dangerous path that's a destructive path but the 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 contrary path is to in in some sense invest the ego in the community right Right. so the ego isn't it it, it's like 
you want to be able to take pride in your work. You want to feel good about it. You want to be secure because you've done amazing things, but somehow when you, when you see that as the process, as the reciprocal process that's engaged with between you and the students and every student is, is sort of invested with the meaning of what the thing is. Um, it feels like you, you end up humbler after every event, Mm -hmm. secure, but humble. Whereas I think when people, they invested in themselves, when they see themselves as the, the, the architect of the entire thing, uh, it becomes too big actually for you to hold. And I think that actually makes you insecure. If you've created yeah. something great, it's not just because of you, right? It's because well, of all these I people mean, showed up for you. And then, yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm like, why would I want to design? I mean, like, I don't know. There's something about not being that interested and what I already know, I already know it, you know? So, (laughs) so in order to like actually create something great, there's a, there's a letting go and a participating in something that's larger. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, um, you can't become better unless you have a, a real dialogue with other people, which means that you're, you have to be willing to sacrifice your own ideas and your own perceptions, your own meanings to the process that you're engaging with, with your students. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about meaning, right? Sure. You you said in here that you, you, that you want to talk about the quest for meaning. So we, we, we've, we've circled around this topic a bit and we were just talking and we just touched on this idea that, that, that a really good teaching process, is 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 creating a reciprocal meaning and that in order to do that in some sense you are you have to be willing to sacrifice what you bring to it you have to be willing to mm-hmm. burn off your own ideas in order to make space for the the thing that comes out of the interaction right yeah so what does it mean to you to 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 see a physical practice as a quest for meaning why a quest for meaning Well, we are embodied. That's just a given. I suppose we could go into the whole brain in a vat experiment. Maybe we're uploaded programs, right? We can get into all these theories. But as far as I can tell, the one common um, thread that links me to every other human being, every other rock, tree, anything that I encounter is that there's a physicality to it. So it's a common ground. It's a place to start that we can all relate to. Um, But being embodied is much more than a material experience. I mean, science hasn't done much to explain why I feel the ways I feel. Mm-hmm. why I love my son, you know, like it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the propagation of the species doesn't actually explain the drives I have. Um, and I think that's where meaning comes in. Um, 
like the question a lot. Um, I think movement is inherently meaningful. And often we can reduce the meaning to let me increase the size of this muscle so that I am symbolically stronger. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it's all baby. Yeah, exactly. That's ridiculous, huh? Um, yeah, but being embodied is inherently meaningful and uh, really just holding that I think is important. I feel like I'm not saying much. <laughs> which is a it's a hard place to be you know, I, I think. think it's interesting because well, maybe I'll, I'll tell my little story and maybe that'll that'll inspire something to come out from you um, when I first was articulating these ideas uh, I was looking at parkour and I was saying well why do we practice parkour right. you know people talked about you know being able to reach or escape Right. It's like, well, fundamentally, that wasn't really that important to most of us. Right. Like, you know, okay, cool. If, if, if someone wants to mug you, you can run away. You know, you live in affluent North Seattle, right? Like, uh, how likely is, how likely is right. that? Right. It's, it's unlikely. Reach for your iPhone, call 911. Great. Right. <laughs> if, if, a, if a kid needs to be saved from a burning building, you know, you're there. It's like, well, you saw that story about the African guy who, uh, who climbed up and saved a baby in Paris, right? Yeah. You think about how many story, how, how rare that story is, right? Millions of par people practicing parkour, uh, none of them getting to save babies. <laughs> right. Right. There's, we, we don't live in the world where, where this skill set that we're cultivating is highly relevant. It's not highly relevant in the sense of the day-to-day -day functions that we need. And yet somehow it's meaningful. It's deeply meaningful to people. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, fundamentally it's a form of play. It's a form of, 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 we do it because it's fun, right? That, that was my first thought. And so I, as I started to conceive of involvement of play, it was like, well, you know, what are the movements that are, that are fun for human beings that are necessarily fun for human beings, but there's always this trap with fun as a, as an end goal. Because essentially it's this form of hedonism, right? And I think that's the problem with, there's a lot to be learned from play, but if you make play the, the end point, it, it maybe doesn't take you where you need to go yeah. because, because essentially, you know, you play could be like, well, let's, let's go to Vegas. Like, you know, exactly. Uh, I mean, you can think of going to a bar and drinking with your friends as play, right? It's essentially a playful waste of time kind of like, let's enjoy ourselves. Yeah, we could, um, you know, there's probably not a lot of things that are actually more enjoyable in the moment than, you know, cocaine and, sex horse, and drugs, right? Yeah. Sex and drugs. That's where sex it's at. Drugs, right. And yet that doesn't build you. Right. People who walk down that path, it doesn't take them somewhere that they really want to be. And so, so there's, this, there's this deeper thing going on, right? We can engage in the process of parkour, yeah, because it's fun sometimes. Sometimes it's suffering. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's struggle. Sometimes it's dealing with fear. And actually, that's, that's 
that's play in a much bigger sense, right? Kids don't aren't always giggling when they're playing. Like right. they're they're always pushing themselves. Well, I watch my boys, man. They are so intense. Yeah. You know, every emotion. It's it's anger. It's it's like deep sadness, you know? Mm-hmm. They're so invested in their soccer game. And when they lose, if they lose, it's it's yeah. crying. It's it, yeah. yeah. Agony. Well, think about the stories that kids play out, right? Do they play out happy stories all the time? Right. No, they play out sad stories. They want to see you cry. They want to see, they want to know what would happen to them emotionally if their parent died. They want to, they want to, they want to cultivate themselves so that they're robust to the reality that it could occur. And so they play these things out. And so when we engage in a process like parkour, like any movement practice, I think we're, we're intentionally putting ourselves on our edge so that we can grow. And what we, what we, and we, what we gain from that is a sense of that we did something meaningful, right? We're not actually aimed at happiness so much as satisfaction, the satisfaction of, of knowing that we're something more than we were before. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of, um, for a long time, I was trying to articulate what embodiment meant to me. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there were two aspects of embodiment. One I see a lot in the somatic community, which is the experience of just being. Yes. And when you're all over the place, it's a wonderful experience to just tune into your breath, to actually notice that your heart is beating, to feel a pulse in your hands, you know, to feel the kind of the movement of lymph underneath your skin, and to just tune into all miraculous things that are happening right now. Just being. That's wonderful. But then the other aspect of embodiment is actually becoming. It's it's um developing new structures in yourself that you didn't have before. So you are stronger, you have more circulation, you can jump further, um, you know, gaining skills. And I think embodiment has to include those two things, like where you are and a real ability to dive into the being part of yourself and the becoming part. And I find that in the movement world, there's, there's a, uh, I mean, the split is being healed, but there still is a a fundamental split. Or maybe people have a leaning towards the becoming or the being. You know, you got the guys who like to just sit and meditate, maybe do their yoga, a little bit of becoming there. And you have the real high achievers who are doing the MMA and they're like, you know, running after the parkour and like just chasing goal after goal. Um, But I'm interested in both of those. And what you're saying about this. um, I mean, we're happiest when we're working towards a goal, it seems. Um, Or at least the, it's very easy, I think, to step back, look at my life, look at the universe, and question whether it all means anything. Um, and having a small goal is an anchor (laughs) that keeps me from spinning out into nihilistic existential chaos. But beyond that, I think it's also, um, training, you know, I remember that 
I thought it was impossible to stand on my hands when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I saw people do it, but I was like, it's just impossible. And then somehow, gradually, I taught myself, I made the impossible possible. Now it's a huge leap. Like I had to rewire my whole sense of, of reality because something that was impossible is now possible. Like, what does that mean? So I think, yeah, move like accomplishing, bridging the gap between what you, what you couldn't do and what you can do now is important. It, um, it adds a lot to our life. Yeah. There's a quote that a human is a thing that needs to be aimed. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have That's to be beautiful. moving towards something. Right? Yeah. And then there's this idea when we're not, when we're not aimed towards something, when, or when we take the wrong aim, when our aim is just pleasure. Um, talk about people who are dissipated, people who are dissolute, right? Yeah. They're, they're coming apart. They're, they're, they're atrophying. Um, they're not moving towards a path of greater integration, towards greater unity, towards greater capacity. And we recognize that that's, that that's a tragedy. That's a tragic story. A heroic yeah. story is a story of the growth of the individual. A tragic story is, is, a, is a story of the failure of the individual, the, the inability to overcome something. Right. And what's interesting is that culturally, we have many, many examples of the tragic hero, right? Mm -hmm. The person with so much potential that just wasted it on whatever. Yeah. Um, these characters actually get glorified. Mm -hmm. And I know in my life, like I was unconsciously playing out the starving artist, the tragic hero, the guy with all the potential that just let it slip away, you know, and like lost it in his addiction and whatever. Um, so those are stories that if we're not conscious could actually claim us because yeah. that that's the other thing I'm realizing stories actually claim us. They're bigger than us. They're not things that um, we create. They're things that grab us and make us their own. So we have to be very careful what we allow to claim us. Um, yeah. It, uh, that's a Jungian quote. Jung said, um, people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, if we think about these archetypes, right? It's like you're gonna you're gonna act out an archetypal story in some sense, right? You're gonna act out something heroic or something tragic, and and that may be true. You may be heroic in some area and tragic in another. And you may act out some tragedies and some hero, uh, heroic stories and, and, and move in gaps, right? Uh, like Solzhenitsyn said, the, the line between good and evil runs down every human heart. And it moves, right? Sometimes yeah. we have great good that comes through us and sometimes we can, we can move in the opposite direction. Um, so if we're not aware of the story, if we don't have ourself articulated in the direction that we want to go, um, we're, then we may be acting out a story that's not really what we want to be. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing that I'm finding is that it takes a kind of um, faith in, it takes a leap of faith sometimes to switch from one story to another, you know, because habits are very, very strong. So I want to move away from a path of, let's say, 
addiction and hedonism towards a path of integration. Yeah. But as soon as I feel a little bit more integrated, the first thing I want to do is go down like that hedonistic little pleasure thing as soon as I run into an obstacle, right? So it actually takes um, this ability to, to know when to um, follow the animal instinct and when to follow like a, a, a rationale, right? Mm-hmm. Or when to follow logos. And I think stories like, there are all these old stories, all these old gypsy stories of the, a boy who found a horse. Yeah. He, st- he steals this horse. And sometimes the horse gives him amazing advice. And sometimes he has to deny what the horse is saying and um, follow his own plan. Mm-hmm. And in these stories, you, you know, the horse says something, he denies it, he gets in trouble. Okay, that's the time to actually ride the horse, to ride the instincts. The horse says something, he does it, he gets in trouble. Okay, that's the time to follow the rationale. So there's, um, or not the rationale, the logos. I like logos as. Yeah. Yeah. It's the marriage of, of intuition and reason. Yeah. It's the, yeah. the seeking for truth and recognizing when things resonate, but also always questioning, I think. Uh, that's the way I look yeah. at it. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's a an aspect of I think that we have with our stories. Well, identities are important to us. We're attached to our identities, right? Mm-hmm. And and without knowing it, we can very easily subconsciously start playing back a, a, a story of ourselves that limits us from the goals that we want to have. It's a great uh, article by a guy named Paul Graham called keep your identity small. It's like the more that you attach yourself to different aspects of your identity, the more that you can, um, that those things can be in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Beautiful. You know, Jung talked about the concept of the self, right? It's the, it's the part of you that is actively becoming. Right? Yeah. And that you, you never want to sacrifice what you could become for what you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. But I think we're constantly. And a lot of people, I mean, you hear that all the time, right? That's, that's a common thing. Well, this, the way I am, right? Mm-hmm. It's claiming this is how I am. Therefore. Yeah. These things are impossible. Um, yeah. So we tell these stories and, and we build, we build the self that we repeatedly do and the story that we repeatedly tell. Like this is something I've been really interested in. You know, at 36, I'm, I'm you know, I guess on the downside of what most people consider the kind of the, the prime of someone's physical career. And yet I feel like I'm making progress now, sometimes really rapidly in ways that are really surprising. And there's very small changes in the way that I, that I hold my identity or the, the way that I tell the story or the way that I act that, that feel like they accrue benefits. Like, because I have this very clear idea that, that when I repeat a pattern, that pattern is trained. Mm. It's in trained. So key idea I got from a guy named uh, Dylan Baker and then also from Stefan Dugru and then also from Jordan Peterson. Um, but, but specifically within the parkour thing was every time you look at a jump and don't do it, 
you train the part of you that doesn't jump. Every time you go through a cycle of preparing for something and you, and you, uh, you hesitate in the moment, you allow yourself to hesitate, that part of you gets bigger. It's like all those little neur- neurons that are associated with each other. They grow, they wire together, they get myelinated. That's who you are now. That's who you've become. And so, so I, I've made a real habit of when I look at a jump and I really believe that I can do it, I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if I look at it and I, and I don't think that my body is ready or my, uh, my heart isn't in it or it's not the right day for me to take on that type of jumps, I don't look at it a lot. I don't, I don't ask myself the question repeatedly. Right. I get a very yeah, yeah, clear yeah. answer as quickly as possible and then I let it go and move forward. And, I, and that I think has had an enormous impact on the ability to continue to make progress because it's that space of hesitation, that space of, of, of hesitation that, um, where you get hurt. Yeah, I really like that a lot. As a, um, you're training yourself either way. It's not neutral. Choosing not to do something is not a neutral. Um, it, it has it has consequence. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, and in that sense, everything can be seen as a practice. Um, yes. You know, we're building ourselves through every choice we make, every word we speak, every action we we take, which is heavy. That's a lot of responsibility. It is. Um, it can also be taken lightly. It can be playful. It can be joyful. It can be empowering, but it's meaningful, right? It, it's not like there are areas of our life that are invested with meaning, movements that are invested with meaning, and everything else isn't. And that's, I think, the way most of us, most of the time, that's the way I, I tend to live my life in a very compartmentalized way. Mm-hmm. And um, my teaching and my practice has been a quest to create more integration. Um, and I think what you just spoke about is one of those keys to, to integrating thought, motion, and aspiration, like who we want to become. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, think a, I think a lot about the idea that, that a practice should, should be building, should be building physical, emotional and cognitive capacity and it should be doing that in a way that's proactively trying to create as much transfer as possible yeah so that i understand that the strategy that helps me overcome the jump is the strategy that helps me um, start a conversation with someone that helps me start a business that helps me do all these things that are hard anything that requires commitment i need to recognize the, the principles that are applicable across these different domains and that and that's how you you cultivate that self that you're trying to create. Yeah. And that's inherently meaningful. That's way more meaningful to me than, you know, getting a good jump. Like the jump is important for sure, but it's important not only because jumping is important, it's important because of everything else. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're, if, if the things that you train don't have this integrative capacity, then you're missing out the power of the training completely. Um, uh, my student, uh, Robert Lansdell, who's, uh, coming up as a teacher with the, the Evolve Play Method, he, he shared a story that I really liked. Um, he said, uh, a man walked by three, three men, uh, laying bricks. He asked them each, 
what are you doing? And the first one said, I'm laying bricks. And the second one said, I'm building a wall. And the third one said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Yeah. And that encapsulates, well, what, what could your practice mean? Right. Same activity. Exactly. And I think, right. And we can do that with every step. That's the, that's the cool thing, you know, not just when we're training, but when we're getting up off the couch. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. It's it, your pride. So you, so I, I articulate this, you know, I saw, you know, one of the famous movement coaches talking about it. Movement doesn't mean anything. You, I just do it because I like it. And I was like, that's incredibly unsatisfying to me. Like, I think that's the wrong path. I think that that's, that's nihil, right? It's, it's denial of responsibility. Um, yeah. I think that you can, you, you can have everything mean nothing and it means that you have no responsibility. But you're left with no guiding principle. You're left with nothing that gives you real meaning. Right. Or you can take on the idea that it's all meaningful and then you have responsibility to it. And that our responsibility is incredibly heavy. But if you pick And what's it up, interesting about the, um, the responsibility piece and that it's all meaningful piece is that it is all meaningful, but it's not all equal. True. You know, yes. <laughs> like it's just because everything means something doesn't mean everything is, is, um, like there's a limited amount of things that actually lead to your happiness and lead to greater good for everyone else. So it actually limits you to a certain extent. Yes. Um, and of course we know that limitation is freedom, right? My dad would always tell me when I was young and wanted to do everything, he was like, he would say freedom from the bondage of soil. There's no freedom at all for a tree. <laughs> I'd be like, I hate you. Stop <laughs> saying that. But you know, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've thought along those lines for years. It's like, you know, if you conceptualized an idea of sort of total freedom as a human being, then you could do anything. You could kill people. You could, you know, burn people's houses down. You could sleep with anybody you wanted, and and yeah, you'd be free, and 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 you'd be utterly cut off from meaning, because meaning is in the duties and the relationships that we have with other people, right. Um, and the, uh, the old stories, this is one of the things I'm really loving about the old stories too, is that they often take place at the edge of the village mm-hmm. and the forest. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the hero has to go out into the forest, into the wild, into the unknown, right? Um, but doesn't stay there. Comes back. And that's, that's like, it's, it's the return. It's like bringing the wildness and the truth and the life to the, the village, which would stagnate and die without that constant flow of. Yeah. It's a, that, that, that's, yeah. I talk a lot about that in my workshops is archetypal chaos versus order. I just read this really nice book called the vagrant. And mm. in this book, like there's archetype. basically there's a, there's a, there's a hole that's opened in the world and is allowed hell to escape. And mm. then the central character is escaping the areas of the world that are, controlled by hell and he's going back to the shining city but when he arrives at the shining city what he discovers is total stagnation and total lack of willingness to confront what's actually happening um and you know the story sort of ends there but you can see that the that what's represented is that as the heroic individual you have to be willing to bring that element of chaos to the stagnant city 
right? You have to be willing to take that order and, and, and go back towards what's chaotic and impose something so that what's good can be harvested out of it. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was a really beautiful story. The Vagrant, check it out, by Peter Newman. Um, but, but so often those themes, they, they repeat, right? And, and when, we, when we can articulate what we're doing better, uh, we can have a more powerful quest for meaning in our practice. For sure. So, um, well, let me, let me ask you this. The stories, what's, what are the stories that you most like telling now? What are the stories that are meaningful for you and that capture archetypally what you're trying to, to share with your students or trying to find for yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you one story. Mm-hmm. And that might actually be a good place to end. And this is a story I heard from a guy, Martin Shaw, and then I've researched it. But um, I'll just tell you the story. Um, yeah. Once upon a time, there was a king and a queen, and they were amazing. Everyone loved them. Their kingdom was vast and it was happy. But at night, the king and the queen, when they sat down on their bed, there was a sadness between them. And the reason is they couldn't have a child. They really wanted a baby, couldn't have one. So one evening, the queen is walking in the forest just north of the castle. And from behind an oak tree, a little old woman comes out and her head's bobbing back and forth, which means trouble. Um, <laughs> and she says, tell me what's in your heart, young woman. I can tell you're sad. And the queen tells her. And the old woman says, I know what you need to do. Go home tonight and speak your desire into a cup. Just Speak what you want into that cup and then flip the cup around and put it on the bare earth. And in the morning, there's going to be two flowers growing underneath that cup. There's going to be a red one and a white one. Whatever you do, do not eat the red flower. Eat the white flower. You're going to have a perfect child. So the queen does that and she does it really well. She's like... She smudges herself, she does Palo Santo, she sings into the cup, you know, she's naked under the full moon. She makes a whole ritual out of it. And then she flips the cup over and sure enough, the next morning, two flowers. And she reaches her hand down to get that white flower and just eats the red flower. I don't know why. It happens to all of us at some point in our life. And this is the time where it happened to her. Reaching for the white flower, she gobbled the red flower up without knowing what happened. And then she said, shit, I guess I'm going to eat the white flower too. So she ate the white flower. And instantly she knew she was pregnant. Um, so time passed. She grows. She surrounds herself with good people in her life. And when it's time for her to push... All the women in her life are surrounding her. They're whispering all the stories and singing all the songs that she needs to know. And her water breaks. And the midwife says, yes, it's coming. And from between the queen's legs, it slithers a shiny black snake. 
And without the midwife even like knowing what she was doing, she grabs the snake by the head and jujitsu like whoa, whoa, throws it out the window and banishes it into the forest. And moments later, the head of a child is crowning and out comes this perfect little baby boy. And this baby boy grows and he grows up to be really strong and really smart and really healthy, but best of all, he's very kind-hearted. He's a delight to everybody. And that little snake incident kind of becomes forgotten in the way that things that we don't want to remember get pushed aside. No one remembers that. So when this boy is 18 years old, he tells his mom and his dad, I want to go out. I want to leave this kingdom. I want to find myself a woman. And his mom and his dad say, yes, you have our blessing. Here's a horse. Here's a credit card. Go out, <laughs> bring, bring him back. So he rides his horse to the, the border of the kingdom. There's a bridge that crosses from his kingdom to the, to the next. And as he's about to get on that bridge from out of the river, a huge black snake like enormous, a wall of muscle, just comes out with big flaming eyes and a, a mouth that's the size of a cave. And it just blocks his way. And it looks him in the eye and it says, older brothers, marry first. And no matter which way this boy turns his horse, he can't leave. So he tries a different way out of the kingdom. And same thing, snake, blocking the way, older brothers marry first. He does this all day long. Finally, he just goes back to the castle. He's like, mom, dad, is there something you didn't tell me about my birth? And they say, I feel like there is, but I can't remember. So they call the midwife in. And the midwife says, well, yeah, there was that snake thing, but don't worry, I took care of it. And this is an interesting part of the story because to the king and queen's credit, they said, we need to bring our child home. So instead of sending out an army, they send out the best poets and the best musicians and the best acrobats in the land to lure the snake back. And they create a huge room in the castle. And because his desire is to marry, they send out word throughout the kingdom and all the kingdoms that surround the kingdom that there is indeed a prince looking for a wife. And when that kind of uh, message goes out, princesses start to line up. So princesses are lining up. The snake chooses the one he wants. They have a wedding. They go into the wedding chamber. And the next morning, when the wedding chamber doors are open, there's a sleeping snake and a pile of bones. And this happens over and over and over again. Ceremony, wedding, the next morning, she is nothing but bones. And pretty soon after 500, 600 times, no more princesses show up. So the kingdom goes into a time of darkness and it's very surprising when word gets to the king and queen that there is a shepherd 
a shepherd's daughter who is willing to marry the serpent. But she needs a year to prepare. So they say, okay. Meanwhile, she's at home at her favorite spot, which is where a river kind of splits into two and there's a big oak tree and it's just her favorite spot. She's been going there since she's a, she's a little girl. She goes to that spot and she says, shit, what possessed me to say I was gonna marry this serpent? And from behind the oak tree, a little old woman with a bobbing head appears and she says, don't worry. This is what you need to do. Every single day, you have to come back to this spot. And it's gonna educate your heart. Just be here and listen. But in addition to that, every month, sew yourself a wedding gown. And sew a very, very, very beautiful um, pattern on the heart. And wear all 12 of them to your wedding, one on top of the other. Bring two baths into the wedding chamber. A bath of lye, which is basically hot water and ashes, and a bath of milk. And bring two scrubbing brushes, metal scrubbing brushes, the kind of thing you would use to scrape rust off of the bottom of a car. So she does that. So she's wearing all 12 of her layers. They get married, they go into the wedding chamber, and the snake does what he always does. He wraps his huge tail around her, lifts her up, opens his gaping mouth, and she does something that no one's done. She actually relaxes and surrenders into the strength. And this is very surprising to him. So he puts her down and looks at her for a long time. And then he says, take off your dress. And she says, I will take off one of my dresses if you take off one layer of your scales. And he says, no one's ever asked me to do that before. So he squeezes and strains and kind of gets every muscle to bulge and he starts to rip his skin open and it's agony really hurts, but he slithers out of one of his layers of scales after a long time. He says, okay, I'll take off your dress. She says, I will take off one. You take off one. This goes on for a while. So finally, 12 times, whatever, <laughs> she is gloriously, radiantly naked. And just remember, she's a shepherd's daughter. She spent all her life like running up and down hills and like she's just beautiful and he this once fierce snake is a slimy pussy oozing pink tender soft nerve ending of a mucus sac worm just this oozy mucus long sack, right? And she takes this, this creature and puts him in the bath of, of lye, the ashes, the black bath, and grabs a scrubbing brush and starts to scrape at his tender flesh and rip at it and pull it apart. And it's agony. He's passing out from the pain. She goes through one brush 
It's worn down. She takes another brush, just scrapes it off. And underneath all of that tender, warm flesh is a boy, a human, about 18 years old. She pulls him out of that bath, puts him in the bath of milk, and she kisses his forehead and his eyelids. She sings songs to him. She caresses his body and her care nourishes him and the milk nourishes him and the songs and the love nourish him. And the next morning, when the king and queen open the wedding chamber, they fully expect to see bones because there was a lot of noise and a lot of screaming going on that night. But what they do see is a man and a woman in what the Irish call radiant content. Um, and to this day, in this kingdom, there is a woman with an educated heart and a man who had the courage to take his scales off. It's a good story. Yeah, that just feels good telling it too. I love telling it somehow. Um, what does that story mean? To you many things but there's something about um the primal nature that we're all born with needing to be acknowledged and um owned and brought back home and honored before we're actually able to take our place in the world properly. And if that doesn't happen, we just wreak havoc. You know, 500 dead princes lie in there. Um, <laughs> and it's also, to me, the perfect, it's the way the story happens perfectly, right? If, if, um, if the queen just ate the white flower, Mm -hmm. there would be no story. You'd have a perfect prince. Yeah. Go off, find a queen, come back. Every happy, happily ever after, right? So the mistake is what generates, the, the apparent mistake is what generates the story. Um, but it also kind of, there's a template there that's also, like I can think of times in my life when I've taken a, a layer of scales off and then the princess lost interest and left. Or, you know, I took three or four layers of scales off and she laughed or brought her friends to like gawk at me. Or maybe I was like down to the mucus sack and being scraped apart. And then a war broke out and an arrow flew in through the window and shot her. You know, there's many ways in which this story can go wrong. So it's very satisfying to kind of go through this like arc of like, oh, that's what it's like at the completion of the journey. Mm -hmm. um, so it describes the end, which I really like. Yeah, it's interesting. You you see yourself in the snake. Well, I, I see myself in the old woman as well, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Joker, the Joker, and and the thing that needs to be acknowledged and loved in order to come into order. Yeah, but it's interesting because different people see themselves in in different parts of the story. 
you know, and different images grab them. And I think it's a wonderful place to start workshop. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell a, a story that I think has a similar theme, or for me, there's a similar theme. Um, I tell the story of St. George and the Dragon. Mm, yeah, yeah. But I tell that story because I see two heroic stories in that. One is the story of the, of the capacity to confront destructively what is chaotic, and that's represented by George. And then there's the capacity to confront creatively or nurturingly what's chaotic, which is represented by the princess. Mm-hmm. And so I view those as a feminine and a masculine strength. Um, but what was revelatory about recognizing that in that story was that I possess both and that I rely a lot more on the feminine strength than I realized. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so as you were telling the story, what I was thinking about was the importance of the power of having that courageous heart of having the, of being the one who could see the little boy buried in the snake. Right. Um, and how valuable that strength is and how often we haven't been able to articulate as a culture, the value of that strength and how often our stories of heroes only, only showcase the masculine. Right. And also how often when we do showcase the feminine, it's necessarily in relationship to men. And what I like about the story of St. George and the dragon is that the thing that she tames isn't a prince. It's a dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To show that, that the, the strength of the feminine isn't only in taming the masculine. It's much more powerful than that. It's much bigger than that. Right. Um, it's in, I mean, the dragon, right? The serpent, those are representations of chaos. Yeah. Essentially. So, yeah. So, so yeah, very cool. Thank you for that story. Um, I think that's a good, a good place for us to end this conversation. I, I certainly think we'll, we'll have to continue. There's a lot of themes that I think we're both diving deep into and a continued conversation would be a lot of fun. So I'd like um, that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Aaron, and enjoy your time in, in Switzerland. And Thank you so much. Tell everyone how awesome my stuff is so I can go to Switzerland. I really want to visit. I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, Rick. Uh, it was lovely talking. Talk to you soon. Yeah, great talking to you, man. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to be able to have us have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.